The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Um, Welcome to Berean Bible Church. We are continuing in our COVID-19 series. And uh, since we're dealing with this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, we're experiencing things that most of us have never experienced. I don't care how old you are. I mean, can any of you remember a time in America when the church was forbidden to meet? I mean, three months ago, that would have probably seemed impossible to most of us. We would have never been able to conceive of that. But because of the coronavirus, our state governments have imposed lockdowns, stay-at-home orders, The governors have deemed some things essential during this time and other things non-essential. Now, how they determined this, I'm not really sure. Uh, They stopped all elective surgeries at the hospitals, except for abortions. That's, I guess that's, abortions are necessary to some people. That shows how their thinking is. Liquor stores are essential. You got to have them open, okay? That's essential to life. Churches, they're not essential. It just shows you the mindset of some of these people. So, let me ask you a question this morning. Is the church essential? Now, obviously, when I say essential, I'm talking about for believers. Non-believers don't care about church. They don't think it's worth anything anyway. But I'm talking to believers. Is it essential? And not essential for physical life, but is it essential for our spiritual life? And I think another thing we have to really talk about, the term church here. The term church could refer to the universal church or the local church. The universal church is the church which Christ places everyone into the moment they trust in the Lord Yeshua as their Savior. This church began on the day of Pentecost, and when a person places their trust in Christ to forgive them of their sins, Yeshua puts them into the body of Christ, the church. The Holy Spirit of God unites them to Christ eternally. Now, it is true, the church is comprised of all believers. But the emphasis in the Scripture is that the church is a local function. The word ekklesia, in secular Greek as well as in the Greek translation of the Tanakh, always refers to a group that assembles and meets together, never to just an entity. So the manifestation of the spiritual body of Christ is the local church. The church universal always finds its expression in the church local, which is a body of believers called out of the world into a spiritual fellowship based on the life of Yeshua within. So when I ask, is the church essential? I'm talking about the local assembly, and I'm talking about is it essential for believers? Is it essential? I would say that it should be. But I would also say that many churches are not essential. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if a local church is not fulfilling their God-given purpose, then I'd have to say they're not essential. So, to determine if a church is essential, we have to know what the purpose of the local church is, What is the main purpose? What do we serve? What what are we called to do? To answer that question, look at me, look with me. 
not look at me. Look with me at 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. I hope to come to you soon. All right. Paul is writing this to his son in the faith, Timothy. Now, and I want to tell you here, this is the same soon that the Lord uses to refer to his coming. In Revelation twenty two twelve, 12, he says, behold, I'm coming soon. Same word. So I guess we have to ask, did Paul mean that he would be there within the next couple thousand years? See, I don't know anybody that would interpret it that way. I mean, we seem to understand audience relevance when reading a passage like this, that, that Paul hopes to come soon. But when we apply it to the Lord, all of a sudden it doesn't mean that anymore, and we've just lost our mind, and it means sometime out in the future. How is that consistent? All right. Let me give you a little background on First and Second Timothy and Titus. They're commonly called the pastoral epistles because they consist chiefly of instructions and admonitions to two pastors, Timothy and Titus. Paul is writing this letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, who was pastoring the local church at Ephesus. He writes in 1.3, I urge you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now this epistle... The first Timothy deals with error in the church and how to deal with it. He talks about proper pattern for church leadership. Gary read some of that today. He talks about elders and deacons. He talks about proper attitudes and roles for men and women in the church and how to discipline in the church. Now, the key verse is 3.15. He says, if I delay, he wanted to come soon, but if he's delayed in that coming, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul hoped to come to Ephesus soon, but he says if he's delayed, he's writing to Timothy, so Timothy would know how he's to conduct himself in that local assembly. Now the word behave here is from the Greek word anastrepho, which describes his whole life and character but especially describes him in relationship with other people. He is talking about proper conduct within the local assembly of God's people. When the church universal gets together to meet in different locations, he's giving them instructions on how to conduct themselves. He says, in the household of God. Now the Greek word here for household is oikos, and it speaks not of a building, but a family. I want you to know how to conduct yourself in the family of God. And then he says, which is the church of the living God. Now, there's no definite article, the, and it should be translated, which is the living God's church. The word church is again from the Greek ekklesia, and it means to call out of. The church is a body of called out people. Now, please note that the church is the church of the living God. The church belongs to God. The title living God was used over and over in the Tanakh. For example, look at Daniel 6, 26. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So believers, our God is a living God. Now, 
we especially need to keep this in mind when we face times of crisis, times of uncertainty, such as this pandemic. Because sometimes, you know, when we get into a situation, we begin to act as if God was dead. We're panicking, we're afraid, we're frustrated, like what happened to him? Well, the great reformer Martin Luther, he was confronted one day by his wife Katie. She confronted Martin with the fact that he was acting as if God was dead. Now Luther was in the midst of a great spiritual battle with the Catholic Church at this time. His writings were responsible for fractionizing the Catholic Church and sparking the Protestant Reformation. His central teaching that the Bible is the central source of religious authority and that salvation is reached through faith and not deeds shaped the core of Protestantism. Emperor Charles V said of Luther at the Diet of Worms, he said, a single friar who goes contrary to all Christianity for a thousand years must be wrong. Luther wasn't wrong, but he was in a tremendous battle and he was feeling the pressure of this battle. And one day during the battle, Martin Luther came into the room and Katie was sitting there all dressed in black and she was mourning. And Martin Luther asked her, who died, Katie? And she said, God died. And Luther went into a theological frenzy, spouting out all these things about God. God can't die. And when he calmed down, Katie replied, well, the way you've been acting, I assumed he died. He got the point. Okay? Now, notice what Paul calls the church. He says it's a pillar and a buttress of the truth. In Ephesus, to which this letter was written, the word pillar would have a special significance. The greatest glory of Ephesus was the temple of Diana or Artemis. Now when Demetrius, a silversmith, he made silver shrines of Diana, he got the people stirred up. And notice what they cried out. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis, or Diana, of the Ephesians. Now the temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world. One of its features was its pillars. It had 127 pillars, every one of them the gift of a king. They were all made of marble, and some were studded with jewels and overlaid with gold. It may be that the idea of the word pillar here is not so much support. I think that's the idea of buttress. I think pillar here is the idea of display. The idea is that the church's mission is to hold up the truth of God for all men to see. The church is to support and display the truth of God. And I think we do this in two ways. Alright, first of all, I think we are to preach and teach the Word of God. And secondly, we reveal the living Christ to our world. Now, let's look at number one. We are not the source of truth. The Bible is. But we are to support and we are to display it. The Bible is God's Word, and the church is to support and display that truth. Now, Timothy was to do this through preaching and teaching of the Word of God. We see in 1 Timothy 4.11-13, he says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, until I come. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. 
So he's telling Timothy, listen, devote yourself to the Scripture. Read it, teach it, exhort from it. Use the Word of God. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Yeshua, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. So now, let me bring this up again here. He is telling him, I charge you in the presence of God, who is to judge. Now, again, this is mellow in the ideas who is about to judge. The living and the dead by his appearing. So his appearing must have been near if it's about to happen. All right, he says, preach the word. Now, people, I don't believe the church's mission has changed since Paul gave these instructions to Timothy. We are to be a pillar. We are to be a supporter of the truth. This is done through faithfully expounding the truth of God's Word. So to answer the question, is the church essential? I think it is if it's teaching the Bible. Which means, if it's not teaching the Bible, I don't think it's essential. I think it should probably shut down and everybody be better off. This is the mission of every local church. But I believe that most local churches have forsaken this role. And when the church forsakes teaching, it's no longer essential. In his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman writes this, Toward the end of the 19th century, the age of exposition began to pass, and the early signs of its replacement could be discerned. Its replacement was to be the age of show business. I think Postman is right on with this assessment. In this age of show business, truth is irrelevant. What really matters is whether we are entertained. Substance counts for very little. Style is everything. And what's really sad about this is that that kind of thinking is also crept right into the church, and the church has the same view. And I'm afraid the church has forsaken its calling. It is no longer the pillar and ground of truth. It's become a source of entertainment. I know you're saying I'm failing at that then because I'm not a very good entertainer. But Just how far will the church go to compete with Hollywood? A large church in the southwestern United States has installed a half million dollar special effects system that can produce smoke, fire, sparks, and laser lights in the auditorium. The church sent staff members to study live special effects at a casino in Las Vegas. The pastor ended one service by ascending to heaven via invisible wires that drew him up out of sight while the choir and orchestra added a musical accompaniment to the smoke, fire, and light show. It's just a fantastic exit, okay? Just a typical Sunday for that pastor, though. Because he packs his church with such special effects as cranking up a chainsaw and cutting down a tree in the church to make a point. The biggest 4th of July fireworks display in town, this church does. And on Christmas, they rent an elephant, a kangaroo, and a zebra. And the Christmas show features a hundred clowns with gifts for the congregation. There's no denying that these antics people draw a crowd. Many churches that have experimented with such message report growing attendance figures. And a handful of megachurches, those that can afford this first-class 
productions, effects, and facilities have been able to stimulate enormous numerical growth. Some of them fill, fill huge auditoriums with thousands of people several times a week. But where do we get the idea that the church's job is to draw a crowd? I mean, that really seems to, to be the biggest emphasis on churches today. How big a crowd can we get? But the purpose of the church is not to see how many people it can get in the doors. The purpose is to be a pillar and ground for the truth of God's Word. The purpose is to teach the Word of God to those people who come. Now, a few of these megachurches resemble elegant country clubs or resort hotels. They feature impressive facilities with bowling alleys, movie theaters, health spas, restaurants, ballrooms, roller skating rinks, state-of-the-art multi-court gymnasium. Recreation and entertainment are inevitable, the most vital aspect of these enterprises. Such churches have become meccas for students of church growth because they're growing. Of course they are. They're putting on a major production. Now, evangelicals everywhere are frantically seeking new techniques and new forms of entertainment to attract people. And whether a method is biblical or not scarcely seems to matter to the average church leader today. Does it work? That's the newest test of legitimacy. And so raw pragmatism has become the driving philosophy of the church. Pragmatism is the notion that ideas may be judged by their practical consequences. A pragmatist concludes that a course of action or a concept is right if it brings good results. It's wrong if it doesn't seem to work. And when pragmatism becomes a guiding philosophy or life of ministry, it inevitably clashes with the Scripture. Spiritual and biblical truth cannot be determined by what works and what doesn't. We know from Scripture, for example, that the Gospel does not usually produce a positive response. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, 1.22 and 23, For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. The Gospel. But he says, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. Majority reaction is no test of validity. Look at Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Prosperity is no measure of truthfulness. Job 12, 6 says the tents of robbers are at peace. And those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. So pragmatism as a guiding philosophy of ministry is inherently flawed. You know, Moses struck the rock and he got results. But God judged him because he didn't follow what the Lord told him to do. Look at Numbers 27. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, And tell the rock, okay, get this, he's supposed to speak to the rock. Tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So he's supposed to get there and say, rock, give me some water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Drop down to verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand 
and he struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. So that's good, right? It worked. He got what he wanted. He got water out of there. Water comes out abundantly. So Moses got results. People say, well, that's good as long as it works. No, it's not. Look what the Lord said. Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given to them. They were judged because of their disobedience. But he got results. In our day, pragmatism is sweeping through the church. Methodology has replaced theology as the main issue that many church leaders are concerned with. Pastors are turning to books on marketing methods in search of new techniques to help their church grow. Many seminaries have shifted their pastoral training emphasis from Bible curriculum and theology to matters of style and technique. Perhaps most telling is the growing number of churches that now feature drama and entertainment instead of traditional services where they just preach the Word of God. The new pragmatism sees preaching as passé. Plainly declaring truth is deemed too offensive and utterly ineffective. See, we're now told that you can get better results by first just amusing the people, you know, making them feel comfortable, giving them little doses of this here and there. Proclaiming the gospel message of redemption for sinners and expositing the Word of God should be the heart of every church's ministry. Because if the world looks at the church and sees an entertainment center, we're sending the wrong message. And maybe that's why so many people are leaving the church today. It's just, there's no message there anymore. If Christians view the church as an amusement parlor, the church loses all its effectiveness. Believers, the growth of a church is the product of the sovereignty of God. Not special gimmicks, not special plans. Look at how Paul described the growth process. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6-7, I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. It's God who causes growth to happen. Years ago when I was with Faith Bible Church, we were trying to figure out how do we grow? How do we get more people in the church? What do we do to do that? Well, we had an ad in in the phone book, a small little black and white ad, and we'd ask people when they came, how'd you hear about us? Well, the ad... They would say that ad in the phone book. Now, you can tell how many years ago this was. You might not know what a phone book is, you young people. But, you know, we had ads in them. So we said, okay, let's, let's really put some money into our ad. Let's beef it up. So we got a much bigger ad. We got a color ad. And we put that in there. And that year, not one person came as a result of the ad. And I just had to think, well, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. You know, you think we're going to do this. And we tried all kinds of different things. Let me tell you what. Uh, the thing that we did that seemed to work the most is to teach the Bible because that drew in people who were interested in that kind of thing. You know, what if the Old Covenant prophets had subscribed to today's church growth philosophy? I mean, can you see Jeremiah, for example, coming up with some of these gimmicks? He preached for 40 years without seeing any significant positive response. How do you do that? How do you do that? 
his, on contrary of seeing good results and huge church growth, his countrymen threatened to kill him if he didn't stop prophesying. His own family and friends plotted against him. He was not permitted uh, to marry, and he had to suffer agonizing loneliness. Plots were devised to kill him secretly. He was beaten and put in stocks. He was spied on by friends who sought revenge. He was consumed with sorrow and shame, even cursing the day he was born. And finally, falsely accused of being a traitor to the nation, Jeremiah was beaten, thrown into a dungeon, and starved for many days. If an Ethiopian had not entered, interceded on his behalf, Jeremiah would have died there. In the end, tradition says he was exiled to Egypt, where he was stoned to death by the Jews. He had virtually no converts to show for a lifetime of ministry. Well, here's how Jeremiah preached. In Jeremiah 19, 14 and 15. Then Jeremiah came from Tophet, where Yahweh had sent him to prophesy. And he stood in the court of Yahweh's house, and he said to all the people, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of armies, The God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon this city and upon all its towns all the disaster that I have pronounced against it, because they have stiffened their neck, refusing to hear my word. Now, what if Jeremiah had attended a church growth seminar and learned a pragmatic philosophy of ministry? You think he could have changed his style of confrontational ministry? I mean, can you imagine him staging a variety show to try to win the people's attention? He may have learned how to gather an appreciative crowd, but he certainly would have been obedient, would not have been obedient to the Lord. And what about Jonah? Did Jonah use a church growth strategy to reach Nineveh? Not really at all. He simply proclaimed the truth of God and the whole city repented. Jonah 3, 2-5 Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of Yahweh. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Again, he's preaching judgment. Not a message people want to hear. Not a message that's well-liked. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. Here he goes in and preaches what God told him and he gets results. Amazing. He's being obedient. You know, Paul was the same way. Paul wasn't big on gimmicks or, you know, different things. He just preached the Word of God. He shunned the idea of methods or gimmicks. 1 Thessalonians 2, 3-6 For our gospel does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. They just didn't try to be fancy. He just got in there and spoke the Word of God. Biblical truth is the only framework by which we can evaluate the rightness or wrongness of ministry methods. And if we make effectiveness a gauge of right and wrong, how can that fail to color our doctrine? 
Ultimately, the pragmatist notion of truth is shaped by what seems effective, not by the objective revelation of Scripture. And I think it's foolishness to think you can be both pragmatic and biblical. The pragmatist wants to know what works now. The biblical thinker cares only about what the Bible says. That's pretty simple. The two philosophies inevitably oppose each other at the most basic level. The case for preaching and teaching the Bible is very simply put. There's no other way by which you can be exposed to the thinking of God except from the Word of God. It is different than all other books in the world because it is a compendium of the thoughts and mind of God. This is why the church is to focus on the teaching of the Bible. Not only to transform our behavior, but it alone brings salvation. Martin Luther said this, the highest worship of God is the preaching of the Word of God. And I believe that's true because God is revealed through the Word. And therefore, preaching the Word is preaching His character. It's preaching His will. And that defines Him in true terms and exalts Him as He should be exalted. So the church is to support and display the truth of God. And as I said, I think we do this in two ways. Number one, we preach and teach the Word of God. People, I would encourage you, I would challenge you to go out and look and see how many churches you can find that are actually teaching the Word of God. Just expounding the Scriptures. Secondly, what's the second way we display the truth? I think it's we reveal the living Christ to our world. Now, the church is the continuing incarnation of God. Let me say that again so you get it, okay? The church is the continuing incarnation of God. Now, the word incarnate comes from two Latin words meaning in flesh. It means that God took on human body in the person of Christ. And since Yeshua ascended to heaven, we now, as His body, continue the presence of God on earth. That's why the church is called the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ that people see. All Yeshua said, all Yeshua did was to reveal the Father. In John 14, 9, Yeshua said to them, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, the emphasis of John 14, 7-11 is pretty clear, I think, if you look at it. Six times Yeshua says virtually the same thing. That He and the Father are so profoundly one that His presence is the presence of God the Father. If you see me, you see the Father. We saw in our study of the fourth gospel that Yeshua is Yahweh, incarnate. Yahweh is revealed in Christ. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Him is the very wisdom and truth of God personified. So everything He ever said was to reveal the Father, to reveal Yahweh. Now watch what Yeshua says. Yeshua said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Now, who's the Lord talking to here? Well, this is addressed to His disciples. Does it apply to us? He's not talking to us, He's talking to the disciples. Are we sent to proclaim and reveal the Father? Yes, I believe we are. The most fundamental reality of human existence is that we're made by God in His own image to be His representatives to the world in which He created 
And the image is not an ability we have, it's a status. God intends us to be His representatives on earth, His image bearers. So practically, what does that look like? Well, as Christians, as children of the Heavenly Father, we have a duty to imitate Christ. If He's compassionate, we as His image bearers are to be compassionate. If He's loving, we're to be loving. If He is just and righteous and true, that's what we're to display. We're to display Him in all we say and do. We are sent to bear His image. Now let me remind you of what we saw when we were in our study of 1 John. 1 John 4.12 No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Okay? Now, John is talking in this context here about love. And then he says, no one's ever seen God. Okay, on the surface, the statement seems kind of random. I mean, what does God's invisibility have to do with the discussion of love? Well, John continues, if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. What's he mean by that? He means that the unseen God who was historically revealed in the incarnation of the Son, is now revealed by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in His people when they love one another. It's an amazing thought, people. People do see God, or people do not see God, and they, for the most part, don't read the Bible, but they will see God when Christians love one another as we're called to. See, mutual Christian love manifests the presence and action of an invisible God. So the question John is posing to us is how is the love of God demonstrated us today? We know that it was demonstrated in Christ when He was in the flesh, when He came to die for us on the cross, to pay our sin debt, and He rose again from the dead. (coughs) Excuse me. But we can't see Him. As God was manifest to men in the past in the incarnation of Christ, God will be manifest to mankind in the presence, not in Christ, but in the loving Christian. Therefore, when the world looks at us, what do they see? Do they see Christ? Do they see God? Paul put it this way, Therefore, be imitators of God as loving children. Be as a present imperative. as the idea. Become. We're to develop continuously into imitators of Yahweh. The Greek word imitators, mimites. It's a word from which we get our English word mimic. To copy something. What it denotes is an actor, someone who spends time and energy in studying a character with a view of reproducing it. The constant call of the Christian is to be like Christ. It is Christ's purpose that each of us reflect the image of our Father. We are to be image bearers. And if we're going to imitate Christ, what's the prerequisite? You've got to know Him to imitate Him, okay? You can't imitate a person that you don't know anything about. To know Yahweh, we have to understand who He is as revealed in the Word of God. Yeshua is God incarnate, and the church is to be Yeshua Incarnate. We are the visible expression to the world of the Savior who is presently in heaven. We are to display Him. So is the church essential? Well, it is my opinion that if it's teaching the Word of God and if it's revealing the living Christ to the world, 
It's essential. The church is to proclaim the truth of God's Word and reveal His Son to the world, even as Yeshua did when He was on earth. As the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar, the support of truth, we are the current expression of Yeshua the Christ in this world. And that's a staggering job description, people. Nothing could be of more essential importance than to be revealing God to the world. That's our calling. Now, from the very beginning of God's dealing with His people, the Bible has stressed community. In fact, biblical discussion of godly living is almost always set in the context of growing together in community as God's people. For Christians today and for the last 2,000 years, God has established the local church as the vehicle for that community. When we come together, we encourage one another, we support one another, we uplift one another. The Christian life is strengthened and encouraged when we get together because we need one another. Are you aware, and here's a little study for you, look up all the one another verses in Scripture. Love one another, forgive one another, care for one another, one another. You can't do this in isolation. You have to be around one another to love one another, to forgive one another. I believe that the church is essential and that it should be meeting. And I don't think the government has the authority to tell us we can't do that, but someone is bound to say, well, we're supposed to obey the governing authorities. I mean, the Bible says that, right? Yes, we are to. But I believe there's two exceptions to that, okay? Two exceptions to us obeying authorities. Number one, if what the authority is telling us to do is a violation of God's Word. Now, the very fact that God created the church local tells me He wants it to meet. All right? We are never to violate Scripture in order to submit to anyone. And I think a clear example of this is in Acts 5. It says, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. The Jewish authorities are challenging the disciples. Keep your mouth shut. Don't talk about Yeshua. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. That's pretty cool. They were told to shut up. They had a gag order and they just kept on teaching. They filled Jerusalem. And you intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The Bible commands us as Christians to be subject to the governing authorities. 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. Even when these authorities are evil people. But if the governing authorities command us to do something that would be disobedient to God, then we need to obey God. Even if the results in our being punished by our government. If our authority misuses its God-given power to command what He forbids or forbid what He commands, then I think the Christians have a duty to disobey the human authority in order to obey God. As Christians, no earthly law can exceed the Word of God. Now, they're going to give us all kinds of rational excuses why we shouldn't meet, though. But we're just, it's just temporary. We'll start it out 10 days, then it was added 30 or 15 days, then it was added 30 days onto that, so 45, and now we're past that. But we're still not allowed to meet. Okay? Hospitals now are opening up for elective surgeries, so some things positive are happening, but they're still going on. And and listen, when, when the governing authorities and God clash, God needs to win. And when the governing authorities extend its reach beyond its divine role, I believe they become the enemy of God. Does Yahweh want the local church to meet? 
I got to say, yeah, because I think the whole, that's the whole reason he created it. If he didn't want them to get together, then he wouldn't have created the local church. He just had the body, the universal body of Christ, and everybody just kind of hang out and do your own thing. Body life is very important to your Christian life. In a spiritual sense, the church is vital to Christians. And yet our governors are saying it's not essential. All right, a second exception to us obeying authorities is if our authorities violate the law of the land. See, as Americans, who do we submit to? Well, the law of the land is the Constitution of the United States. And it's the duty of every elected official. And when an elected official swears in, they swear to uphold the Constitution of the United States. The problem in America today is that our political leaders have violated their oath of office, blatantly disobeying the Constitution. Our government is loading us up with all kinds of unlawful laws that restrict our freedom. And I don't believe we have to submit to these laws because they are unconstitutional. Amendment 1 of the Constitution says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. I think it can be argued that every part of the above quote has been violated either directly or indirectly by our state government. The hindering of religious-based gatherings have occurred across the United States. The Constitution gives us the freedom to meet, but our governor decides, no, you really can't do that. Peaceable assemblies have been banned, because you're not supposed to have groups more than ten. Some states, three or two, have been banned. And it's kind of hard to get out and protest against the government peaceably if you can't leave your house, if you can't be with two or three people. And now you see people are waking up around the country and they're getting out there and they're going to the Capitol and they're telling them, we're over this, stop it. These blatant, unconstitutional actions have historical precedence, though. Government convincing its citizenry that fundamental rights come second to the illusion of security and prosperity is exactly how Nazi Germany maintained a mental grasp on its citizens. You know... In, in my view, it's impossible to argue that attending a worship service is any riskier than going to Home Depot or Lowe's. Okay? We drive by Home Depot or Lowe's on Battlefield Boulevard. That parking lot is slammed. And I've been in there. There's people all over the place. Okay? Yeah, massive people, but you know it's okay here. All right? But in the church, you can't do that. When the church is mostly people who know one another, who understand one another, who care about one another. Home Depot, you got just a random people running all over. I got to believe that community worship is just as essential as Lowe's or the liquor store. Okay? I got to think that. Now, I'm sure that someone is bound to say, but it's dangerous to go out there. I mean, we could catch this virus. They're just, they're just looking out for our benefit. I know that's what the mainstream media is telling you, is pushing that narrative. Listen, they want us afraid because fear equals control. All right, if they push the fear, 
I just read something this morning that said, you know, oh, you got to be careful now because if people are going out, we get a second round of this. It's always worse than the first. Oh, you know, fear, panic. That's what they want. Now, QDrop, for those of you Q followers, QDrop 4040 last week gave a link to the CDC website. Charity, go full screen. I don't want to show you this. This is uh, from the CDC website. And I want you to notice here, they got different categories here, but the category for COVID deaths, 11,356 deaths. That's from COVID-19 alone in the United States. Thank you. The number of deaths being reported are 54,217, but that is from pneumonia, influenza, and COVID-19. All right. Listen, this is not Fox News. This is not some conspiracy website. This is the CDC putting this out. Okay, now let's do a little math here, okay? There's 329 million people in the United States of America, which make the death rate from this virus 0.0034. That is extremely low. All right, the flu that we see every year in flu season is way higher than that, way higher the death rate. So why the lockdown? If this is true, and if people it's coming out clearer and clearer now, you know, doctors are saying this, this is not, you know, what they made it out to be. It's not about a virus. It's about control. So I don't think we have to worry about you know, this virus like they're telling us to do. Uh, But, you know, bottom line is if you want to stay home, stay home. If you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. But don't judge others who don't want to stay home, who want to go back to work. And I think it's very, very hypocritical for people who are staying home and getting paid by the government to condemn people who aren't getting paid and need to work to stay alive. We need to stop judging each other, people. If you want to stay home, then stay home. If you don't, Go back to work. All right, Charity, go back. So, despite what our government says, I believe the church is essential in the world today. And I believe if it keeps on the way it is, we're going to see many more deaths from suicide because people are depressed from, you know, abuse at home. All kinds of people are, if you're not making any money, it's a sad, scary time right now. They can't pay their rent. They can't get food. And now, the mainstream media, lamestream media is pushing, there's going to be food shortages. They want you afraid. So go back to last week's message, Faith or Fear, and listen to that. Because we can't be afraid, people. We can't be afraid. The church is essential because we are literally the presence of Christ on the earth. We reveal Christ, even as the church, even as Christ revealed God. And the church's mission is exactly the same as was Christ's mission to proclaim the truth of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for the opportunity to take a look at Your Word. Father, I believe that the local church is fundamentally important to Christians' lives and well-being. I ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, that you would strengthen us in the midst of all the confusion, the so many different voices we're hearing. I pray that your people 
would be Bereans now more than ever. Not just in the Scripture, but in everything they hear. Study it. Consider the source it's coming from. Dig into it. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Kathy, will you bring me my phone? Any questions or comments? Gary? Jeremiah wasn't a proponent of the health, wealth, gospel. Do what? I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt. No, go ahead. Uh, Jeremiah, it's obvious that Jeremiah wasn't a proponent of the health, wealth, gospel. No, he really wasn't. He, he wouldn't have fit into that category too. You know, but here's the thing. I, I can't find really any biblical people who were a proponent of the health, wealth, gospel. It didn't seem to fly back then at all. So maybe it's a new doctrine, you know. Yes, um, Tanya says it won't be overnight change, and it's not going to be an overnight change. Here's the thing that I guess I want you to understand, and I, I want you not to be afraid, because once they say, okay, we're opening up, restaurants are open, everything's open, you're still going to have that portion of the population who are fearful. Because the media has made them fearful, okay? And so they're afraid. I mean, that's, you're hearing that from every voice. And these people, they need to be arrested, the media, because they're so deceptive. They're so full of lies. I mean, the information that came out on General Flynn last, last week was absolutely amazing. The FBI entrapped him. The FBI. That was a big news story, okay? Back in 17, Flynn was the bad guy. Now he's being exonerated, or being exonerated, and they're like, crickets, not a word. It doesn't fit their narrative, people. And that's why, you know, hydroxychloroquine, nobody's talking about that. But this new drug they got now, that will lower your, uh, hopefully your sickness by four days, hydroxychloroquine is curing people. This will lower your sickness by a few days. But you know what? This is a patented drug. And it's an expensive drug. They're saying it's like $1,000 a tablet. Hydroxychloroquine is like 63 cents. So what do you think they're going to be pushing? The less effective of it. Uh, Ron texted me. He said the Johnson Amendment neutered preachers because they don't want to lose their 501c3 status. We don't have that status. Um, because it's ridiculous to, you know, agree with the government to not say what they don't, you know, they determine something is political. For example, they'd say abortion is political. Is that political? That's moral, okay? The Bible talks about homosexuality. Is that political? It's moral. They've turned into political things, but it, it, it's sad what they're doing. The media made them fearful, but the church is more concerned with money than truth now. Well, I, I guess I'd agree with you on that, Ron. And that's one of the problems. That's why you got to get a lot of people in there. Because you need a lot of money to support what you're doing. Yep, you got to put on the show and you got to fund that show. You know, I mean, that, it's costly to do that. You know, when they shut down the church, that's one of the first things I thought of. Because I come out of a Baptist church and I know, man, they, 
every Sunday you're being pounded on about, you know, giving and giving and, you know, tie this and tie that. You know, these churches without people going in and putting money in the box, there's going to be some churches going bankrupt because they got huge buildings and huge staff and who's paying for all that now? It's crazy. <laughs> all right, anybody else we done? I got a question from Bob here, um, Crookshank. He says, would you say a distinction has to be made when your employer requires something of you? You are on, you, you are on their time and not your own. There might be some confusion on that issue. Well, yeah, I mean, if your boss tells you you have to do this and you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. You can quit, okay? Unless you're a slave, and by that, uh, an indentured servant like you're in the military, okay? Because in the military, it's not a job. You're an indentured servant. You have signed up. I give you my life totally for four years, however many years. And they tell you to do something, you do it. I was an indentured servant to the Navy, and I got the swine flu shot because it was mandatory, all right? And shortly after that, I was paralyzed from the neck down. I got Guillain-Barre syndrome from the shot, so I'm kind of anti-shot, anti-flu vaccination, especially when the guy creating the vaccines now is a eugenist and wants less population. So think about that, people. He's making a vaccine to help you, but he wants you gone, Okay? That's ah, nuts. It's just, you know, people we really need to learn to think. <laughs> All right. Um, let's come back up here, band. I want to close again. We're singing Heal Our Land. Because, listen, until we put God first, that's what's important. And this, if the churches today have you know, turned into entertainment, and they're not teaching the Word of God anymore. We're supposed to be leading the way, people. The church. 